I'm Laura Vinroot Poole. For 20 years, I've owned Capital, an internationally recognized specialty store. Capital has never really been about fashion. It's always been about people. What We Wore was created to share the meaningful journeys that inspire me. From the designers and friends I meet on the road to the men and women with whom I work each day. Everybody wants to know her Amy Smilovic is the founder of Tibby and a fellow Southerner from St. Simons Island, Georgia. She's a fascinating mix of business and creativity, and I loved hearing how she always stays true to herself. We've met before, Amy, and I think that I always really felt connected to you because you're one of the few people in fashion that were Southern. Yes. <laughs> you're, yes. We're, we're pretty rare, aren't we? Very rare. Very rare. I mean, a few more, I'm from Georgia. So now like you're seeing, you're seeing more pop up and that's great. Like so happy to see it. You're from St. Simon's, I think. I'm from St. Simon's Island. Yes. That sounds amazing. Tell me (laughs) what it was like growing up there. You know what? It was amazing and I didn't appreciate it at all at the time. I mean, it was amazing. And then there were some limitations and what was amazing about it was It really was kind of that, the good side of a Pat Conroy novel. You know, my mom and dad were artists and teachers and they were home from work by 4.30. And I remember griping because my dad would want to play tennis with us every day after school and, you know, being angry because my parents would want to go to the beach on a Sunday morning and cook out. And I would get sand and my eggs and, you know, we had a Jeep and we drove it everywhere. And and my parents are still married to this day and have a great relationship. And so, you know, when I look back and think, well, I grew up on an island, we ate a ton of shrimp, we would go singing for it. It was, it was really good. And, but the downside of it, which, you know, I mean, like I got out of it what I wanted, but the downside was I didn't have exposure to a lot of careers. And I didn't really know. You don't know what you don't know. Right. Tell me a little bit about your mom and dad and your mom's style. And I think you had a very stylish aunt. I wouldn't say that she was very stylish, but what she was, she was an entrepreneur and she was in Indiana and she had her own company. And I really just, she, she didn't have children and I was her one relative who was really interested in what she was doing. And, you know, growing up on an island with teachers who were artists and and school, you know, teachers and artists, we just didn't have much, right? And so my aunt, who was this entrepreneur, to me, she was my rich aunt, you know, living in Indiana and having a phone book company. You know, she was no like Getty, but she would take me shopping and she bought me my first Calvin Klein jeans and my first Donna Karen dress. And she just allowed me to actually buy some of the things that I had just really dreamt about and really could not get the babysitting dollars or anything to add up. 
to buy. We were talking about somebody was saying how important magazines were and to yes. their style. And I was like, forget magazines. What about catalogs? I mean, that was really the real deal because you could really see where you could buy things. Seriously, I had we would get the Spiegel catalog. Oh yeah, completely. <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> Seriously. Yeah, you had the Spiegel catalog. And and then it was crazy how homogenous everything was. You know, I think that's why when you look back at pictures like from the 80s, everyone either looked like Billy Idol or you look like Molly Ringwald <laughs> in Breakfast Club. And there were no other permutations. You had to, you were one or the other. So and right. And college pictures, same thing. Like, you know, up until the internet, you just like, everything looks so much the same. You just, you didn't have access to a range of fashion on St. Simon's for sure. <laughs> and so um, when, your, when your aunt took you shopping, did she take you to Atlanta or did she? It was funny. This is the way I got to shop. My mom took me twice a year to do school shopping. Right. And my sister, for some reason, hated clothing. And so I basically got her budget and my mom would take us to Lord and Taylor and my sister would like sit angrily in the car <laughs> and I would go shopping and get my school clothes. But that was just, well, actually it was just once a year. It was just at the beginning of the school year. That was it. And then my aunt, we would go to outlet malls. But they were legit. Like back in the day, outlet malls had some of the very best stuff. I was telling my daughter about Lomans the other day. Yes. Incredible. The clothes were at Lomans. There was uh Lomans and then there was uh Oh, another one that started with an S. Um, yes. Yeah, that was killer. Yes. <laughs> when I got my internship at Ogilvy Advertising, I remember I went to Sims and I bought like, I put like $4,000 worth of clothing on my visa. <laughs> and I was like, I'm going to have the best like working girl, serious wardrobe. And I remember I showed up and... I'm wearing like this full on, you know, power suit and the other interns, you know, even though this is in Atlanta, it was so Southern at the time, they were all wearing like Laura Ashley dresses. Right. And you had a full like Donna Karen five. Piece. Yes. <laughs> Via the outlet. And, but the other interns, I remember like one of the girls, she was like, well, for work, I'll just wear church clothes. <laughs> Until I start making money. And I was like, mm -mm. one of us got the full-time job and I did. And I know it was because of, I know it had a lot to do with those suits because every time clients came in, I was the only intern that didn't look like, you know, uh, I was on Little House on the Prairie. <laughs> so That's a great story. <laughs> it's why clothes matter, honestly. Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, they say everything about you without you saying a word. Exactly. They do. Like it or not. Like it or not. Exactly. I love something that you said in the pre-interview that your parents told you that as long as you have your health and your moral soul, then you have nothing to lose by going for your dreams. Yes. I love that. And did they, was it always like that? I mean, they always pushed you to do whatever you wanted to do. Oh my God. My parents, I mean, to a fault, the gloss has always been <laughs> overflowing. And I always juxtapose it because, you know, my, my poor husband, like he gets thro so thrown under the bus as examples in these interviews, but 
<laughs> you know, he did. He grew up under communism. They escaped. They hid out in Vienna, Austria for a year. You know, Frank is Jewish. His mom was in Auschwitz for six years. You know, when you have the saying of like, what's the worst that can happen? That. <laughs> they know the worst that can happen. And so, you know, people have different perspectives. And my parents have always just, I mean, I really, if you have each other, if, I mean, I'm so lucky. I know that now I'm so lucky to have parents who really love each other. Yeah. Uh, you know, and I didn't even realize how I moved to New York. And I remember I was telling people at American Express, I'm like, oh my God, I'm going to go home for Thanksgiving and be with my family. <laughs> and I mean, everyone at Amex was like a stereotype of like, you know, the son out of ordinary people who went to Harvard and the mom hates them. And, you know, I remember they all looked at me and they're like, you're happy to be with your family. And I was like, yes. Yeah. It, it's always, you know, we're always in market, I guess. I, and, and we were hopefully not again, but we were always in market in December. You would be kind of in Italy and, or in New York and people would say, you know, what are you doing for Christmas? Where are you going for a holiday? And I'd be like, we, we're from the South. We actually like going home and being with our Yes. Kids. <laughs> we watch old movies. We just like, <laughs> we watch trading places and just hang. <laughs> You went to Athens to the University of Georgia. And did you study fashion there? No, literally, I went there not knowing what I wanted to do. My sophomore year, there was a movie that came out called Nothing in Common with Tom Hanks. <laughs> and he was an ad exec at what was supposed to be the equivalent of like Leo Burnett in Chicago. Mm-hmm. And it was literally when I watched that movie that I was like, oh my God, there's... <laughs> a career that I can have that is really creative, but I'll make money because it always, my dad being an artist, I was like, I need more money than this. Like I want the Gucci bag. I want the Donna Karen suit. And I was like, how, but to me at the time, I was like, an artist will never have those things. And then the aunt who was the entrepreneur, I knew I wanted to do that, but I never thought that what she did, I never thought that it could have a real artistic side. So when I saw nothing in common, I was like advertising, like this is the dream job. And it was for, it was for a while. And it got me, you know, people always ask me how I started a fashion company without a fashion background. And I'm like, how the hell would you start a fashion company with just a designer background? There's no way. Hopefully not. Right. (laughs) Hopefully not. You need you need some business background. Yeah. So you went to Georgia, studied um, advertising, got your internship with Ogilvy in Atlanta. Mm-hmm. And then from there, moved on to Amex in New York. Yeah, I worked on the American Express business. And then Amex hired me to come work on the client side. Enjoyed it? I mean, you liked what you were doing? I loved it, which really is a testament to whatever you're doing, as long as you're like really present in it, Mm -hmm. then, you know, I, I loved it. I met my husband there. We actually met at a, there was a meeting in Hawaii and I got set up to play tennis with him. Did you beat him? Did you play well or what? (laughs) I did play well. I was really good back then. I was good until I had kids. He was senior in the company. So it was one of those things where we just kept it very quiet, but not because of the difference in the levels, but because um, 
because growing up under communism, you know, if you ask Frank what he had for lunch, he like wants to know why you want to know. So <laughs> we kept it super um, quiet. I mean, we're just, a, we were an odd pairing. So no one ever thought that we would be together. He had lived and he had been with Amex for, uh, I think, 20 years when we started dating and had lived in, I think, eight countries for Amex and wow. had never been married or anything, just was constantly moving from country to country. And then y'all moved to Hong Kong? We were dating and then got married. And so we were together in New York for like three or four years. And then he got transferred to Hong Kong. And what was that like? Oh my, it was amazing. <laughs> the Hong Kong knees are such, um, they're such just entrepreneurs. They're very American in their entrepreneurial, aggressive spirit that way. Hmm. They really just get things done. They're very pragmatic and it was a perfect place to start a business. And so you, you were not working for Amex at the time when y'all moved? No, because I would have been reporting to him. Got it. And so you started making clothes? I did. And literally within three days of being there, I had a sample line. So <laughs> before, before I left for Hong Kong, I knew that I wanted to start a clothing line and I knew what it was going to look like. The literal business model that I was starting out with was that there was a woman in New York when I was getting married and she had a apartment on the Upper East Side. And if you went to her, she would have like a rail of fabrics and then a rail of styles. And you could choose the style and then she would have it made up in the fabric mm -hmm. and she was young cool but I went there and I was like ew like <laughs> <laughs> I hated the fabrics and the clothes were very average and so when we moved to Hong Kong I thought well what if I had a company that had really good fabrics and this is the late 90s so I wanted like all fabrics that Helmut Lang, Prada, Armani would use, Michael Kors. And I was like, what if I had those type of fabrics? And then what if I had all kind of like Prada-esque, Donna Karen, this was the era of Gwyneth Paltrow, Great Expectations. So I had all these like really streamlined bodies. Someone had told me where the fabric district was in Hong Kong. And I went there and found all these Italian suppliers, which are funny that I still use to this day. That's what I was going to ask. Do you still work with a lot of them? Yeah, it was wild that I was able to stumble into that with literally 24 hours on the ground in Hong Kong and no industry knowledge at all. But I was buying fabrics from companies like Zibeti and Manteco and got the fabrics and then... I called a headhunter and they gave me these guys, Benny and Ivan. Those were their American chosen names. And it turns out that they were both two young Chinese guys whose families had been, you know, in the business forever in China, but in the business of making clothing for the Walmarts of the world. Hmm. And so while I was having my ideas, Benny and Ivan were thinking, why can't we be making better clothing? If we've got skilled sewers, yeah. why are we making crap? Why can't we make good stuff instead? Why can't, why do we have to charge $3 for a pair of pants? Why can't we charge $18 to sew the pants? When I literally walked into their door, they were like, okay, this is it. You know, it was immediately 
immediately I was in business with them. And I think people wildly underestimate how hard this business is. How, how long did it take to get the business off the ground or how long did it take before you knew that it was going to be successful? Here's what I really think people underestimate. I think they underestimate how easy it is to go up really fast and how unbelievably far you can fall so quickly. You opened in 98, right? Yeah. In 2008 crushed me. And I have to say it was, it it crushed me so much harder because 98 to 2008 was so easy. Yeah. I mean, I didn't know what I was doing to be successful. I had no idea why it was so bananas. It was going. No, it was when I first started out, I remember like there was a store called Eye of the Needle. Yep. And another one called Saturnia in Greenwich. And I remember like at Saturnia on a Saturday, she would easily have like a $35,000 day easily on a Saturday, right? just without even trying. And it was crazy because my husband, we've been purging all of our files and he had all these invoices from 1998 and 1999. Mm-hmm. And he was like, oh my God. <laughs> He's like, what's so crazy is how big these orders were yep. from like the, you know, Kiri's in Athens, Georgia, you know, 16, $20,000 mm-hmm. orders, which nowadays, like you have a few stores in the U S that could write that, but not, I mean, that's just not the way it is now. You know, was your t- first t- turning point like mine? Was it in 2008 when everything fell apart? No, I had an earlier kind of shock to the system when, you know, as a brand, you're figuring out who you are and what you're, you know, is someone going to pigeonhole you, you know? So I think for designers, you can flame out really quickly because when I say I started with like this Gwyneth Paltrow vision, what happened is literally the next week I met a 22 year old there named Octavia. She and I decided that, okay. Cause I was like, I started a company last week and she was like, can I hang out with you all day? And I'm like, sure. And then we were like, let's start another company. I'm like, sure. Cause the first one was so easy. <laughs> and so then we were like, let's do these like little um, skirts and dresses using fabrics from Indonesia and we'll recolor them in crazy colors. And that's what we did. And that's what really stuck because it was really simple and digestible. And then Tom Ford came out with that crazy Lily Pulitzer Mm. beaded inspired collection. And so all of a sudden all we were called like Hong Kong Lily and there was kind of a, you know, that like picked up on a trend then my partner left and I was on my own, but then like Janine Braden from Fred Siegel came in and she saw this scarf print that I did. And she was like, if you do this in like really tacky, ugly colors, I'll buy tons. And I did. And she bought tons. Bill Cunningham did a whole full page of these tacky skirts, not realizing they were all mine. (laughs) And so it was great because I was able to maneuver with the moment. But once I grew into like a fully fledged brand, I realized that I had gotten boxed into 
an aesthetic that absolutely was not me. Right. And, and being boxed into that, like, I, it was just, I would just say utter confusion from like 2003 to, and then in 2008, we had just gotten so big in terms of like figuring out merchandising, but I would literally hate everything I made. And it was all big department store business. And so with the 08 crash, I was like, we've got nothing to lose. I need to like make this brand something I'm proud of. And that took a long time to to clean that up. And did you know all the things that you needed to do? Like, were you clear on what that meant? No, I think when I look back, I thought that I could clean it up in baby steps for about the first two years. You know, I thought it could be a slow transition and it ultimately never was because you still have the department stores coming in and saying, I love you for this printed dress. And then they come in and be like, but printed dresses don't sell. <laughs> you know, and, like we saw, we had a sixty-seven percent sell-through of style number four seven three five. We need another one of those. Well, another one, <laughs> and we'll take it at like three times the number of units that we bought from you originally. And then, by the way, we've had another designer that we've asked to go ahead and knock you off and do it at <laughs> one tenth the price. And then they'll come back to you then the next year and be like, you know what? It didn't sell. The price was much higher than this other brand. And I'm like, no shit, but. You know, so that's just the mess that they're in. But no, I finally knew that I had to make a hard break. And that's when um, the whole social media world was opening up. And I started talking at the time with this woman named Elon Kling, who obviously now, you know, everyone knows who Elon is and going on to start to Tom and everything. But Elon at the time, I was like, you know, I really loved her style. My last name is Swedish. I've, I'm very drawn to, you know, this helped crystallize my aesthetic. Elin and I kind of did a collection together and it was my first runway show that I did with zero prints mm-hmm. and just kind of just went there. But still like an idiot back in the showroom had like five prints for people to choose from, which was... Just so stupid. You called your staff, you called your wholesale accounts. I mean, how I'm, I'm sure that was really scary. In 2010, it was scary because we, we really like, as we were getting rid of the prints, then we were like, no more. And so then we had a lot of accounts who dropped us. Mm-hmm. And, and those were, you know, that, that was super, super hard. And, and they were dropping us. Well, here, I'm leaving out something big that I did. I took all those prints and I created another line called Four Collective. Okay. I can't believe I'm like even, I feel so disassociated with that life. <laughs> I created a line called Four Collective. And in the first year it did 5 million. And I took all those prints and I put them into like just six simple bodies that we had done back in the day. And we were like, if four collector, and then we got a showroom in Midtown. So we made it totally disassociated with Tibby, mm-hmm. but we told people that Tibby was producing it and shipping it so that they knew that it would fit. They knew the quality would be good and they knew that it would ship on time. And cause I was like, what's the number one hurdle for a new designer, right? It's fitting and fit and reliability. 
So I knew if I could tick those off that if I just took those prints and put them somewhere else, I could keep some revenue coming in without it tarnishing Tibby. You have a lot of people that left Tibby and just bought that because they yes, and And that's what we wanted them to do. Yeah, yeah. You know, it was all those stores that are like the pink banana or (laughs) stores that have sentences as names like on my own. (laughs) You know, it's time to get dressed. So. is that still around I don't even know no no we let it live for three years and then like any brand the salesperson for for collective would come to me and they're like hey the clients are looking for more novelty and we're like no 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 you were supposed to be the quiet stepchild you did your job yeah you gave us money for three years and we're going to shut it down and we just closed it up okay and it was so good to be able to just shut it down and not even care And so what it did is it fueled Tibby so that we could do whatever we wanted on the Tibby side and not have to worry so much about the finances. And then talk to me a little bit about the pandemic. I mean, I have to say, I I have been so blown away by your Instagram lives and how vulnerable and honest um, you are. I mean, I, I can't believe them because I think that fashion by its nature is very dishonest <laughs> and, and just, yeah. and just it, you know, everything's perfect. Um, everything looks great from the outside. And I, I've just loved hearing you really talk about what's going on. Thank you. I, but you know, I have to say, I, at least for me, like when I work with other retailers, stores, any of the ones that are really independently owned, they're all kind of doing the same thing. Cause all of us have figured like, we got to just, you got to do something right. And you do what you can do. And then you figure out that like, this is all that I can do. And I got nothing else, you know? Right. And it's kind of as simple as that. You don't have the luxury to overthink anything because <laughs> what's the point of that? It's not going to lead you to a different conclusion. I mean, I'm not deciding between doing that or doing a gigantic PR campaign and a 12 page spread in Vogue, right. you know, so you, you really are, um, you know, necessities, the mother of invention. And that just could not be more true. And one of the things yeah. I like so much is your personal one where you've been advising other designers, which I think is really, really rare too. And it's so funny. We, the last few podcasts that, that we've recorded have been, we're doing like a retailer kind of mini series. Uh-huh. And it, and it's so interesting because there's no, there's no place for any of us to ever relate to one another or connect with each other. And it's just, it's interesting to, to call and have an hour long conversation with, you know, with Jeffrey or Beth. Isn't it so nice? Oh yeah. I mean, and, and, and I think that that's being Southern a little bit, like I've always made a point to, to be human and communicate with people, but it's really not encouraged. (laughs) No, I mean, that's what I told that CFDA, you know, like like a year or so ago, they just were having different calls with people on what they can do better. And I'm like, there's no facilitation between like discussion amongst retailers and, you know, the retailers and the designers like to coming together and having conversations like yeah. it's so critical. And you've done an extraordinary job and have, ha- what has the feedback been? I mean, I'm sure people have just been, over- I can't, I just can't believe how positive it's been. And that's why like 
like, honest, I have to say this every time, like I would never wish COVID on anyone or on the world, but for us, I mean, it has just freed us to a level that I never, I didn't realize how much I was suffocating before COVID because even though the brand from a physical, physicality perspective the collection looked the way that I wanted it to I loved it but we were just on a pace that was not sustainable and you just didn't realize what thin ice you were on until COVID hit and when you literally had a month where you were like today there are no checks received no checks received (laughs) <laughs> I mean, like, I, you know, with employees, like, I was like, I'm not lying. Like, there's zero revenue coming in. Zero. Right. And you had already paid for all of spring and all your fall investment. Like, the amount, like, all of a sudden, knowing that you would, like, for someone like me and I were privately owned and that you've shipped out, you know, million worth of goods and you've invested another 3 million in future goods. And so you've got over 8 million outstanding and you're running at a payroll of $260,000 of payroll, like living in New York and renting in, you know, space in New York and right. That is, you know, (laughs) our office is over a million dollars a year. The store is over a million dollars. Like, I'm like this math, (laughs) Shit. For people that haven't read Women's Wear Daily or Business of Fashion, where I think you've had some pretty in-depth interviews, can you talk about what, how it changed your business, what you did? It seems so simple in hindsight. We're like, we can't do business that's not profitable. Yep. We are not in a business to average out where we'll make some good money in one hand and make no money in the other and average out in the middle. We can't afford that. So we will not do any business that's unprofitable. We will not overextend ourselves. We took ourselves down to 39 employees. So we said we will not try and do the same amount with less. We are going to do less with less. I was like, I've got two designers now. We had five people just on the design team, you know? So I'm like, what can we do? And I was like, we can do two main collections and we can do, we can create drops when we, when the the feeling hits us, but we thought we can't do any of this if there's a crazy markdown cycle going on out there. So that meant that we had to cancel relationships with every single U.S. department store, and we did. And that was really, really liberating. And we said that we will not accept any orders in that we know that we can't absorb because the one thing that happened during COVID was stores called up and they're like, you know, I'm going to cancel those 300 shirts. And you're like, what the, Mm. what am I going to do with 300 shirts? And so, you know, if I had a kick plate, if they needed to cancel five shirts, I can handle that. The 300 I can't handle. Right. So we decided that we would not, just engage ourselves in things that would that could effectively put us under. And, and so, and if we were more profitable with, you know, selling through product that we certainly, we, 
it just wasn't going to be about scaling. It was going to be about being much more profitable on a dollar by dollar basis. And how did people handle that? The department stores were, I think, really surprised Mm -hmm. that we were willing to walk. But at the time, I think so many people were saying they were going to walk. But I think in the end now, I think a lot of brands are behaving like it is when you give birth and you forget how painful it was. But I have not forgotten. I got stretch marks (laughs) all over. I have not forgotten. And I will not go back there again. And I scarcity now is amazing. Dion and I, when we do lives, like I would never put on anything on live that I wouldn't wear myself like crazy ever. And I think people know that. All I'm focused on right now is if we can explain the brand and coming up with the term creative pragmatists has been the most helpful thing that I've ever done because I've never been able to say what Tibby was. Creative pragmatist is a term that I came up with because I had a problem describing my style because if you went to like a department store, it didn't exist. Right. A store person would say, oh, here's the bohemian, here's the feminine, here's the sexy, here's the edgy, and here's the classic. <laughs> yeah. Well, and then and then you had like the super modern, you know, which was like the very avant-garde art gallery or, you know, like Marnie at the most wearable and then, you know, 10 times more extreme than that. So there was never any way to be like, well, I want to be effortless, but I'm not bohemian. And I like things to have heritage, but I don't want them to be classic. And I want them to be modern and very current, but I don't want it to make me feel ridiculous and look like I'm like more from Schitt's Creek. And so I came up with the term creative pragmatist to say that that is someone who dresses in a way that is creative, but still has a lot of utility to it. Functionality, you know, that if you are a person and you're going to the grocery store, I'm I am not going to be the one that is wearing, you know, that trend sneaker with the Vince (laughs) pant and the Lulu, you know, like I just, it's too basic. And I also don't buy into like the super, I would never walk around in like the Chanel snow boots and the, you know, but I want to look cool and present, but but appropriate in the environment that I'm in. But no matter where I'm in, I always want, I love fashion. Like, yeah, I want to have style, but I don't want to look ridiculous in the grocery aisle, but I'm not going to wear Lululemon (laughs) and Uggs. I'm not going to cop out either. The future of retail might look different, but I think, I do think it'll be better. What do you expect from retail in the next several years? You know, there was this phenomenal article in the Wall Street Journal on UPS. Mm-hmm. It's on the the woman who's the new CEO. And the whole thing is about profitability and how what she realized when she got to UPS was that they had like 
one third accounts that were super profitable, one third that were okay profitable, and one third that they were hemorrhaging money on. Mm -hmm. But as a company that was focused on scaling, as long as it averaged out to a general good profitability, then that's a tack that they were taking. And she was like, no, we're not going to take that tack anymore. Smaller is better. We're going to get rid of all the unprofitables and we're going to focus just on the middle and the super profitables. And, and they, and she went through and she canceled all these huge contracts. Hmm. And when I read it, I, to me, that is the future because what's been happening is that you have the Amazons, you have the department stores who've been like, okay, you know what, we'll lose money on these um, super, super indie brands. And then we'll make a ton of money on this disgusting whatever brand. And then we'll make so-so money on these heritage brands and it will all even out. And so what it is then all of a sudden that very mediocre department store Mm -hmm. was competing against you guys at Capital. Yeah. Because here they are having your super special brands. They're not making any money on them, but they've they've averaged out all their margins so that it's okay. And so what, what it is, is in the real world, that is what puts a kink in, in capitalism functioning properly yep. is when someone grabs up all the toys and hoards them <laughs> with this like super strategy of margin averaging. I think also e-com and like you know, net-a-porte or, or far-fetch even that, you know, you've yep. these businesses that have literally never been profitable since the beginning. How are you even competing with that? Like that, that doesn't make any sense. If someone told me that my biggest competitor never had to pay for fabric and never had to pay for employees right. and, free and, that, and basically that's what you're up against when you're up again, when you are like, okay, Farfetch has just now been evalu- evaluated at five billion. Yep, and and that it's okay that they've got a thirty year horizon and they're not going to make any money. No one is letting you operate that way. No, no one's at all. No, at all. So I think that I'm hoping that this profitability model that UPS is implementing. I'm hoping that that is going to happen more often because what it means then is all those accounts that UPS cut off, there are all kinds of other small businesses that can scoop up those businesses and satisfy them. And it, it takes things away from this heavily monopolistic situation that's occurring. I think that there is some decentralization that's going to take place because of that. And that should bode well for the specialty store. I think that independent designers, I am working so hard to educate people on why you don't want to work with some of these bigger guys. Yeah. And I think that they've got to really understand what's in it for them and get the right mentors out there. Cause I don't think that the CFDA is going to be mentoring people in the right way. You know, I mean, they're, they're mentoring people to like go into like events, Kelwoods, you know, right. Like not one of them is like, I want to help build a pathway for you so that in 20 years you're sitting there and you still own your own company and you want to go to work every day. Exactly. That's the dream. That's the dream. And I think also people 
need to, I'm trying so hard to educate people that you shouldn't be asking, why does this dress cost $2,000? You really need to be asking, why does this t-shirt cost $20? That's the, that's the criminal one right there for (laughs) sure. Everybody's talking about, uh, you know, comparing the next few years to the roaring twenties. Do you, what do you think it's going to look like? Do you think people are going to dress like that? No, I don't. I think that. Don't you wish though? <laughs> I wish, I wish it more than anything. And I, and I'm, and I know for a fact when, when COVID lifts, I, I do want to be dressed. Like I want to be dressed. I don't want to be like cozy and slinking around and hiding. Like I want to be full on dressed. Although I have to say, like answering all these questions every day gives me hope that people like this morning, I just asked a question for IG live tomorrow. And I said, is there an occasion that you want to know how to get dressed for within one hour? I had 250 submissions. Wow. And there were the most detailed things. Like I have a lunch to go to and a place that always rains and the ground is muddy and, but I want to look great. Wow. So it is so encouraging how many people want to look great in their regular life. Mm-hmm. Cause it was all about five-year-olds birthday parties and things like that. And so that's super encouraging to me. And it's amazing how few people feel like they know how to do that. And so I'm really hoping like so many people write to me and they're like, what are other style types besides creative pragmatists? And I'm like, there are other style types. Like I really encourage someone who is another style type to start talking about it. Cause I'm not going to tell someone how to be a feminine bohemian or anything, <laughs> but I wish someone else would give those people those tools. Cause you know, not everyone's a creative pragmatist. But I think that's what the great specialty stores do. Don't you? I mean, that's- yes. Yeah. That's why I keep telling people. I'm like, go out to these stores. Do not, do not let this Amazon (laughs) world take over. I mean, it is going to be a really sad day when there are just stupid drones dropping off hot dogs at your house. (laughs) Like that is a sad day. (laughs) I hate that. I hate it. I hate it so much. What did you wear to the prom, Amy? (laughs) I wore a, oh my God, why did I wear this? (laughs) Why? It was, you know, we have a picture and we all posed like we were in risky business. And so we all wore Ray-Bans. No, no. Yes. And I, I actually, I borrowed a dress from my friend Peggy, but it was, I mean, it was like a full on taffeta cream puff, massive number, like poofy sleeve. <laughs> what color? Cream. Okay. It was cream colored. And then we had our Ray-Bans. Oh my but God. My friend Elizabeth Gross, she had such a good dress. And I remember hers was so simple and clean. And I was like, why? You know, when you don't know your style, you just don't know. And I was like, I remember I wanted to be her. And I'm like, why do I look like a meringue? 
And she was just like so clean and simple in what she was wearing. Amy, thank you so much. I appreciate it very much and really love talking to you and can't wait to see you in person. It was so nice talking to you. What We Wore is produced by Capital and Balto Creative Media. The original song, Someone So Enchanting, was composed and performed by Britt Drazda. What We Wore is a member of the Queen City Podcast Network, powered by Ortho Carolina. Find out more at queencitypodcastnetwork.com.